0: Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Lynette Lewis, aka The Brain Broad. She is a renowned brain change and behavior expert, as well as the creator and host of the international docuseries Fix It in 5 with The Brain Broad. She's a frequent speaker on the topics of brain function, neurofeedback, behavior and play, beliefs and cognition, parenting and special needs to groups and in homes around the world. Her greatest achievement and proudest pleasure, though, is as the single mom of eight now grown kids, six adopted, four with autism, and various other cognitive challenges, all now impressively and groundbreakingly successful. But don't think that just because she's incredibly capable and super qualified, this is a stuffy, jargon filled conversation. Not at all. She and I had a great time talking about brain health, child development, autism, vaccines, and many other things that are important to every parent. I'm sure you'll get something useful from it. Now, before we go on to today's episode, I want to remind you that we've added a self-study program in addition to my one-on-one and group coaching packages. This is an amazing resource for you to explore at your own pace and learn about improving your health and well-being. To learn more and to apply, just head on over to e.show forward slash coach. In any case, I don't want to keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Dr. Lynette Lewis. And remember, you are on the Highway to Health, and I'm your guide to get you there.
1: Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting-edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the Stem Cell Guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Highway to Health Show. I am joined by Dr. Lynette Lewis, and she is known as the Brain Broad. So Lynette, welcome to the show. Thank you. What can you tell us about this Brain Brought name?
2: You know, that's really fun. I love that you started with that question. Well, first of all, there's a great big brain behind me. Um, I carry it everywhere in case I lose my own mind. But (laughs) thank you for laughing. But seriously, when I first began doing this work, I did it backwards to everybody else. You know, I started by having my own problems and adopting challenged children that were multiply handicapped and I just wanted to be a mom, you know, I just wanted to snuggle and hug and sing nursery rhymes. (laughs) And I figured, you know, I love them really hard and they get better. And of course, it's never that simple. And uh, I had to start learning. And as I started learning, everything I learned to apply to my children also applied to me. So I always had to stay a step ahead of them, you know, a little bit smarter, a little bit better. And the world that I lived in didn't have the answers that I needed. I tried a lot to believe in the authority figures to use the regular school system and they were wrong and they were constantly wrong. (laughs) So I was like, okay, at some point you can either decide, this is me and I'm the total mistake maker here. I'm completely wrong and abdicate all responsibility or take the bull by the horn. So I'm not good at abdication. (laughs) It's It's not my forte. And I have this savant kind of ish, not really savant, but this special understanding about how A leads to B leads to C in behavior. And I had it since I can remember since I was three telling the adults they were doing it wrong. So which was not as, cute to them as it
1: is to me in my
0: memory
2: (laughs) so i just started making it up and making it up with knowledge and information and my children's changes and reactions and being out of the box and you know taking them out of school and living in an rv and traveling all over and and trying to school them in a way that i thought would prioritize the things they needed to learn and it worked I did have one scene who was just so challenged that worked on him. Just looks like he can differentiate now and sort of talk. And, you know, so you have to put it in its perspective, but the other guys got out of their diagnoses, had great, have great lives. So in that process, I had to learn things and I got certified in a lot of things and stuff and eventually became a doctor because then It was the story was fait accompli and I wanted to be listened to. So I did all of this backwards compared to everybody else, which means often I was abroad. I had to be tough. I just barely remembered your original question. So I had to be really tough. I had to be the one that would say to the teachers, absolutely not. We're out of here. That would you know, stand up for the kids that would, in the face of it all, walk away from a doctor regardless of their opinion. But at the same time, be broad-minded because, you know, sometimes they were right and I was wrong. And you had to be able to be both, and it's a difficult line to walk. So when I started traveling all over the world, working with other people's children, speaking, writing books, and all of that stuff, to try to get what I knew out in the world. I thought, what, you know, what, who am I? Who am I? Cause I'm so colorful. My story is so colorful and you know, I don't want to act like I'm just this hoity toity doctor when I've been down in the trenches over and over and over again. In fact, I have a bruise on my face from my great granddaughter and I wouldn't put on my makeup to cover it cause I don't want to be a girl right now. So, <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, I'm in the trenches all the time. And so, it just sort of evolved and I became the brain broad and it's stuck because it's a good sound. Right. And it really sort of lands and says who I am. Plus, I do comedy. So when I do comedy as the brain broad, that's fun.
0: Of course it is. And then nobody really has that additional question of what is it that you do? Right,
2: right. It says it right away. And actually broad, I then, you know, turned it into something. So it stands for brain repair, overcoming astronomical dysfunction. So it's got, you know, it's got a little poster and all that stuff.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that we wanted to get into. So you just shared with us you know, your whole story about starting (laughs) back and how you got the name of the brain broad. But at the very beginning of that story, you mentioned that this whole thing started with your own challenges even before you started adopting your children, correct?
2: Uh, Yes, I had challenges. I came from an abusive home. And also later, later, I went and talked to someone and said, you know, what was I? Was I weird because I came from an abusive home? Or was I, you know, were my parents fed up with me because I was weird, What you know, chicken or egg? So we did go through it and she did decide I'd had Asperger's, but that I developed. So this was later after all the kids and all the learning. So it's not really knowable, is it? What I do know is I came from a challenged situation and as a result, always wanted to save children and had a bad blueprint for what good was and what bad was and what acceptable behavior was and what the norm was because my home life was wrong. So in that sense, yes. Did I start adopting so that I could you know, improve my mind? No. I did that because I wanted to save children, and I just wanted more children, and I couldn't have more. And it was normal to adopt, and I got looking into it, and I saw the children that weren't going to get homes, and, you know, one thing led to another. In the process of helping them, you start to recognize your own challenges. Right? It's dangerous anyway. Like, if you ever take a psych course or read the DSM, well, it's the five now, but at the time it was the DSM four, you know, you're like, every page, you're like, I've got that too.
0: Well, that happens to all of us. Right. It's kind of like when you go to med school and every little thing like, oh, I've had that before. <laughs> it's like, no, you haven't. <laughs> right. It's all about degrees.
2: And I think it's an important point to bring up for people because right now there's such a scare about like autism, for example, everybody's always oh, my child autistic. And actually it's problematic when you jump in and start doing, ABA is the normal thing to jump in with. And that's, Applied behavioral analysis, and it's just like constant. You've got this poor, like, two year old who's just a little bit of a late talker, maybe has a little gross motor issue with their bottle or something. And next thing you know, they're doing 40 hours a week of intense therapy and not having a childhood. and. It's just wrong and you can actually create the problem you're trying to prevent. So this whole fear thing, it's really important to go, okay, this is about degrees. You know, this isn't about is your child not saying the hard consonants at the end of their words, you know, let's ease up here, parents, give them some time and don't waste that childhood don't waste that time either. So if you have suspicion that your child is having problems and not learning, play with them. Go, oh, wow, they're not building blocks. Get some freaking blocks and go build with them. You don't have to get a professional to do that with a stern face and take stats and ruin the whole experience. So you're the teacher, be it.
0: Yeah, I think that whole point about, you know, the fear, and it also happens even in schools, it also happens in, you know, even with certain physicians or like the primary care, the nurse's assistants, who are very quick to diagnose these things now. And for a long time, I ran a stem cell clinic in Cancun, and the one condition that we treated the most was autism. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trained and I'm MAPS trained and all the doctors are, because we realized that in order to train autism, it's a lot more complicated than just wrestling a child into getting an IV. You need to really understand what's happening with the condition because most doctors think that it's just something wrong with the central nervous system or with the brain in general. And in reality, it's a much more complex situation, right? So we started learning and for a long time, I've been studying and I've been involved in the autistic community. And one of the things we used to see a lot where these children who had just received a diagnosis and once you start talking to them they were these diagnoses were just being thrown out like oh yeah yeah you've got autism you've got autism because just like you very well described they were maybe a little bit behind with their language skills or maybe a little bit behind with their motor skills and nobody stopped and looked and said well the thing is that child is sitting in front of the tv for x amount of hours and really doesn't have the right socializing skills because nobody's socializing with them, you know, or because all these different things are happening. So, the other thing that, and, you know, you being a brain expert will be able to tell me if this is accurate, but one of the things that we keep hearing is that despite them being very young, so two year old, you know, 25, 30 month old child, if you keep telling them that they've got autism and they've got a problem, that they've got a delay and They start internalizing this, correct? Well, of course.
2: Of course. It's an interesting thing because, so you have a child that not just you have autism, because that's a really broad thing to say to somebody. And, you know, depending on what they think autism is, they could manifest that or manufacture that in their own behavior. Let's be more specific to that. Let's say something as simple as, you know, you don't like to be touched. This is a common lie about autism it's always like you don't like to be touched I gotta tell you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids that I've met with autism every single one of them wants affection and likes to be touched they do have a sensory problem generally speaking and so they do have areas that either want too much touch or too much pressure or can't handle light touch or so they may appear that child may appear as if when I hug him, he's doing this and he's protecting his chest or something. So he doesn't want to be touched, right? So if you keep saying, "Oh, well, he doesn't like to be touched, he'll internalize that or she. And then she'll start going, I don't like to be touched. I don't like to be touched. And that anxiety that that then builds will make it so that in fact, if you touch them, the... <gasps> partly because they won't have desensitized to touch in any way, shape, or form. They've been hyper-focused on don't touch me because somebody's always told me I, like a whole myriad of other things comes as a result of this mistake, this one mistake, this one. So when people say something like, okay, he's two years old and he's having some problems, so let's just throw the book at him because you can't hurt him by doing therapy. I have to tell you, that's just plain not true. You know, that's not what your childhood's supposed to look like. It's not how it feels to be loved and to be social and to be played with and to be, you know, num, 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 two on their cheeks. And like that stuff is supposed to be happening, not sit at a table and do this over and over again while someone analyzes you and, and
0: takes you, notes.
2: Oh, it's the note taking. It drives me nuts but it makes for better stats and it makes it easier to accept in evidence-based medicine. So, you know.
0: I know. And I think the more we look into that and the more of we tend to emphasize in this whole evidence-based and data gathering and all those things, the farthest away we move from humanizing healthcare in general.
2: And we deny lived experience. I have a real big problem with that. So we'll look at somebody... Vaccines, hot issue. Great, great example here. So we'll look at someone who says, I vaccinated, then this happened, and we will be insensitive to it because, no, 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 all of the studies, all of the evidence says you have to vaccinate. This distance between looking someone in the face who's just literally seen their child fall apart and what we've been convinced of by the stats and by this mounting evidence that who knows how it's all been created. This is a problem. Evidence isn't supposed to take us away from human interaction and love and responsibility. It's supposed to bring us closer, but it's being used in a different way. So you have to look at lived experience as being very important. True, reports are fallible. True, memories made up true. (laughs) You know, anecdotal is not enough, but you can't look a woman in the face who just lost their
0: child and say, Oh, wow. That was my question. When does it stop being anecdotal? Because when I first got involved at the clinic, and I, I'm a traditionally trained MD, and then I did age management and regenerative medicine, and that's how I got started with stem cell therapy. I didn't intend to be an autism doctor, and eventually, we started getting a lot of autistic patients because this one doctor was referring a lot of them to us, so we started learning a lot more about them. But the first couple of families who came in, and when you start interviewing them, and they said, Well, it was the vaccines, and the first few, you say, yeah, sure, of course. And and you just listen and pay no attention. But by the time the 30th, the 40th, the 50th family with a child with autism comes in with the exact same story, you start second guessing yourself. And by now, eight years into this journey, by the time the thousandth family that I've interacted with, it gets to the point where you have to really start questioning, are we paying enough attention to this? And Where's the line where it says, okay, this is no longer anecdotal, because I don't think that a thousand families have conspired to create a story. (laughs) I just don't believe that. Right. No, no. Well,
2: they haven't. Clearly they haven't. Well, first of all, I don't think anything ever stops being anecdotal, even when you do a study. Because every time you go to set up a study, you're still making your parameters based on so many things that aren't really the necessarily the exact
0: right. Or thing you're, or you're just the stacking deck. the card. You're stacking the deck, and yes, yeah, so you're like,
2: I think this is true, so I'm going to set right. Uh, yeah, so a study's just a study. It's just another piece of information, and to let one erase the other is silly. So. Even a study in some ways is anecdotal and that's something for people to understand, unless we're just sitting there with, especially when you're talking about people, human beings and we're looking at behavior and all that. I suppose if I'm studying how metal acts under certain temperatures, it's probably more clear cut. So number one, I don't think it ever really stops being anecdotal. It just leans to one or the other. Secondly, we already know that vaccines risk causing harm. So why do we as soon as somebody comes with a report you know act like that's not true i mean we've known that all along that encephalitis can happen that like we don't what we don't know is what autism is so since what we don't know is what autism is it doesn't make any sense at all to say those parents are lying they're wrong they're made it up they're hysterical that doesn't make any sense Obviously, there's something there that we should be bringing into our broad-mindedness and seeing where does this fit? Is it the numbers of vaccines? And now we get into the stuff that everyone talks about. Is it the numbers of vaccines? Is it the mass production of the vaccines? Is it, you know, and on and on and on. Is it the preservatives? Is it like There's so many questions. In my family, there's too much Autism you know, there's too much. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise vaccinating my great grandkids. That's why I have a neck like this people, because (laughs) because I'm a great grandmother of three. Wow. (laughs) But you know, we didn't, we chose not to, not because I think vaccines cause autism, but because I think my family has a predisposition towards brain challenges, autism being one of them. And I don't want to tip the scales in any way until their immune systems are strong enough and they're strong enough and, and they've gotten enough of their skills that we feel like, okay, which ones of these are we comfortable
0: with? That was part of my conversation a couple of months ago with Dr. Gordon Peterson. He's known for a lot of research in terms of silver's properties as an antibacterial, antiviral, and antimicrobial in general. And we were talking about vaccines at one point, And he mentioned that if, you know, when you look at the inserts, even there, it says that you shouldn't combine them, yeah, Yes, that you shouldn't use them. <laughs> I mean, the inserts say that you should not combine them, that you should not use them for a child who has another disease at the time. So what really happens a lot of the times, and he put it very clearly and made a lot of sense at that point, because most of the time, parents don't bring their child at the scheduled time for vaccinations. It happens that the child suddenly gets a cold. So they bring him to the office. And then the doctor says, oh, while you're here, right, let's break the rules of the vaccine. Exactly. Because they think that if we don't do it now, they're not going to come back, which in a way is kind of true. But then you're just completely overlooking the directions and the guidelines from the people who basically make this thing and not really paying attention to how it works. And you shouldn't even combine them. You shouldn't treat them when they're not fully immune protected. So, there are a lot of things. And I think that in the grand scheme of things, if you look at humanity in the last couple hundred years, have vaccines in general done more good than harm? I do think they have. But are they safe? I don't think they are. Not for everyone. I don't that. Not on a mass scale. So And the pendulum swings, right? So we swing...
2: And we're, oh, we're so good at swinging, right? We swing and we swing and we add more and we add more and we add more. And then there comes a point where, yeah, actually now, now are the vaccines going to continue to do more good than harm? There's a chance that's not
0: going to be true in a bit. It might very well be. It might very well be. And I, like I've always said, like, for instance, our son is vaccinated. He's turning two in, in a couple of weeks. But we're following a very specific, very conscientious adjusted schedule you know, with different doctors and with different, because I do believe that some vaccinations are better than not having them. I do believe that some of them are completely useless. And so we're not having them and we're doing them consciously and awarely because I do think that they do pose a benefit. Now, on the other side, I think that while they can be a very big toxic load on the body and on the immune system, there's other things that might as well. So we're not saying, you know what, we're not taking care of how eats, what he's exposed to, all the environmental things, all of those things, and then blame everything on the vaccines, because that's also not right. You need to do both. So that's one of the things that I've always emphasized. A lot of the times, many of these families, they come in and they will be the first to say, you know what? We weren't very careful with what we were eating. We weren't very careful with the different kind of exposures that we were subjecting our family to. And we, you know, we had chlorine and fluoride in the water and all these different things that- that Fast food and- yeah. Easy packaged foods and yeah, 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 all that stuff. So I think it is a combination of a lot of things and we just need to be aware of it.
2: I do too. And in fact, you're bringing me to a point that I like to make, is which is that at the end of the day, it's now become our responsibility as patients. This isn't just about vaccines and maybe we should swing off of that for a little bit or you'll lose all your listeners because it's such a hot topic. But for example, when you give somebody an antidepressant, I say this to my patients all the time. you doctor pulls out that prescription pad. You went there to see him and he's a prescriber. So he's going to prescribe you something. That's his toolbox. So when he pulls it out, say, what are you giving me? I'm going to Google the withdrawal symptoms. Don't just go in. See, now this is the same thing with the vaccines. Everyone's not reading the answer. They're not. If we don't, as patients, say, what are you asking me to put in my body? And what is that going to do down the line to me? Then, you know, we're kind of giving away our own authority. My kids would still be very, very special needs if I gave away my authority. They would be very damaged.
0: Yeah, well, I think that as patients, we do have to be our own advocate a lot of the time. So I had that conversation as well with a former patient who was on the podcast. And that's exactly what she was talking about. She said, like, listen, you know what? I've been laughed out of doctor's offices more than once. But in reality, she says, I also lived with a misdiagnosis for several years. I also lived with the wrong treatment for many years. And nobody was paying attention to that. And they all chalked it off to, well, it happens sometimes. And there's things that we still don't know. But when I stand up for myself, then suddenly I'm being difficult. And suddenly I'm being <laughs> you know, unreasonable.
2: Right. But do it anyway. Just do it oh, anyway. Of course. You know? Oh, of
0: course. You have to. Yeah,
2: you have to. You're the one, first of all, you're expecting too much of your doctor, by the way, <laughs> because if you were, just Google anything, there's a 6 million versions of it. It is too much to keep in your head. It is too much to keep in your awareness. And a doctor, like everybody else, has their pet things. There are things that they see a lot of, that they're really versed in, that they think of quicker, they diagnose towards more easily, the... Favorite medicines that they use. They're human beings, and this is an enormous field full of so much to know that it's not possible. So, you know, you have to be a responsible patient, and you have an advantage. The doctor, when he's looking at you or she's looking at you and is trying to figure out your whole story, they don't know all of your subjective stuff, they don't know your personal things. They don't know that when they say to you, yeah, but it's pretty common to get a headache in the right temporal lobe when your jaw is clenched at night. So probably it's TMJ. They don't know that you have, no, no, no. See, it's starting back here and it only happens at night. And it only happens when I'm like your little bits and pieces you can put in. And when you do that searching, you can narrow the field. And when you narrow the field, you come to us with some choices and it's quicker to help you.
0: And then you also have those additional things. And what about this? And couldn't it be that? And and that also kind of like helps your doctor go into that direction. And I've had a few doctors else here on the podcast, and most of them will agree that nowadays with... The amount of information that's out there, that model of the doctor who just sits in his high chair and says, this is what you're doing because this is what you have and this is your treatment and get out of my office almost, that's long gone. Now it has to be this collaboration. It has to be a team effort. It has to be, there has to be that trust and that empathy. And and one of them actually, Dr. Nick said, you know what, I want to have that discussion. I want to have that drawback because if I don't have those questions, I know that the patient is just nodding because he's being polite but I don't know if they're going to follow my directions or not. I don't know if they they're have. More likely than not, they won't. And that's why you want to encourage that because if you have a discussion, then you're going to very clearly know, you know what? I'm not taking this because I don't want to take this or because whatever reason it is, or they might say, Oh, you know what? It does make sense. Now I'm going to take. Or this. worse.
2: They'll do everything you say and not apply their own mind to looking at their side effects or their problems with the issue. And they're nodding their head going, oh, wow, this is more than I can understand. He's the expert. And they don't bring themselves into the story and get very sick when they could have just let you know early in. So you really do want them to be a partner. So we want you to be partners.
0: (laughs) For sure, for sure. Because then again, the responsibility should be the doctors. I always say this here and I say it to my patients I say it here in the podcast, health is an active pursuit that each one of us is responsible for. My doctor can't be responsible for my health. I have to be responsible for my own health. Just like the person sitting in front of me at any given time, whether it's in my office or, or listening to us right now in the podcast, they are responsible for their health. We are here trying to facilitate information, trying to show them a couple of things and share our experience and expertise. But they are the ones that have to say, well, you know what, that might not apply to me because I have all this other information. Or they might say, oh, that's a piece that I was missing. You know, what that brings me to,
2: so I have this docu-series, it's called Fixing in Five. And what I do is I have cameras go with me to work and I'm trying to do five different countries. So far, I've done Uganda, Israel, and the States. I'm still looking for the other two families. So they come with me, they go into, you know, the cameras follow me and I'm there for five days and I work with the family. So we're, this matches our discussion. And by the way, that's available on the Autism Channel if anyone wants to watch it, or you can go to my website, lynettelouise.com and go to Fix It fixitm5 and you can rent it, that helps me fund it. So what happens is I'll go there and always in five days without fail, this is what made me want to do it. No matter what their diet is, what their religion is, what their culture is, what their race is. In five days, I can make marked, seeable change where everybody's jaw is dropping.
1: Good change,
2: by the way. (laughs) So for example, someone who's having seizures stops having seizures. Somebody who, you know, another boy couldn't poo on the toilet because of his compacted bowel, he's pooing fine, things like that. speech comes, aggression stops, like, always, always without fail. But that doesn't mean after I leave, that they'll keep doing it. And it's an interesting challenge. So why I wanted to put all my money into building this show, and make sure that when I leave this earth, I've left a legacy that says, hey, this is possible, it's up to you, is that sometimes they don't keep doing it. And it's shocking. You're like, In five days, look what we did. Why would you not keep doing this? But uh, it's a lot of work.
0: (laughs) Why do you think they stopped doing it?
2: (laughs) A few things. One, because I'm expensive with this show, I go to poor people who couldn't have otherwise have got it. So that's a dynamic in and of itself. There's no skin in the game, as they say. People that have no money. So for example, the woman in Uganda, she's used to going and getting free stuff so she just keeps changing whatever free medicine she can get for anti-seizure. Well, that's not a good plan. So I cover them for a year. They get on their feet enough that they can now take it over. But they have this blueprint. We started talking about you know your blueprint. So they have this blueprint of when help dries up, I go get other free help. And this is one of my biggest challenges with helping people with no money is that they don't want to go the distance because they're now going to have to stand on their own feet. And I give them a whole year first, but then they're either going to have to keep getting the session. Yeah, but
0: then they're on their own, right? And right. it right. requires effort. It's not that they cannot do it. It's just that it requires effort and people don't want to get out of their way.
2: And a different kind of thinking. They've been trained to believe of themselves by their upbringing and their social circumstance, to believe of themselves that they need help. And they develop a kind of their own emotional challenge of needing that attention, needing that help. It's very interesting. In the end, I'll do one documentary and we'll see where everybody ends up. But I have noticed that when I give it away and I help them this way, that keeping them going is harder than the people that pay a lot for it. So it's a challenge.
0: Yes, I think all of us in this field have got into that at some point. There's two things there. One is that as health professionals, we also have bills to pay. So as much as we would like to help people for free, you cannot just call the bank and say like, well, I've been doing pro bono work. Uh, because I'm going to say yeah that's that's very nice but you still owe us some money right <laughs> so that's that's the first thing exactly exactly so that's that's one but on the other hand it is also that sense of ownership when people don't have any skin in the game like you very well said if it's given to them then it's not really valued and like i said the thing is as doctors, you don't just go in there and say like, "Oh, there you go." It's sort of go on your own, because really, that's not how medicine works. I mean, maybe certain sides of it. When you're talking about something surgical, you go in, you remove the appendix right, if that right, was right, you, right, right, like right. that. And, you know, you're done, then but you most of the time have, it yeah, isn't. you
2: have adhesions and scar tissue, and if you don't manipulate, but like there's always,
1: exactly
0: there.
2: there's always your part to play.
0: Exactly. So I do agree with you. And it is an observation that I think most of us have done at some point because we, we get into this field because we want to help people one way or another. Right. And then we go a little bit beyond that and we say, okay, I'm just going to do this for free. I'm just going to go a little bit extra. I'm going to do all these things. And in reality, you find out that it wasn't very useful or valuable because they, didn't have any investment into it. So that is that is a bit of a challenge.
2: There is another point to it too though. I'm there for five days and they're having to learn and change so quickly. It's almost like a whirlwind for them that they they don't know how they got the change they got. And they don't want to go back and watch the videos of themselves because we all have that thing like how I'm saying my neck looks so old, right? So we have, it's hard to watch yourself, it truly is. And it's hard to watch your family be in this place and have someone just come and make change it's difficult it's painful so then they don't do that homework because it's painful and often it doesn't continue now not all of the families but you know it's been a challenge regardless so the show for the people that aren't in it they can learn so it's still worth doing because at least you can sit at home. and Go well, it's not me, so I don't have to feel bad. So I can watch and learn from <laughs> them, right?
0: And I can watch it again and again.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Now, one of the things that has always fascinated me whenever I see people talk about change is that change happens. Or lasting change can happen rather quickly. I had the chance of training in, in neuro linguistic programming with uh, Richard Bandler and with John Laval, and one of the things that really impressed me was seeing how they can achieve change in seconds, almost in certain things. in certain things. Uh, of course, but that I think is also part of the challenge of what you were saying right now. Because if people have been believing something for their entire lives, or it, 30 years, whether it's true or not, when somebody said to them, well, the thing is you cannot read out loud. And suddenly they believe that. And they said, I cannot read out loud. And they've held that belief throughout their entire life. And suddenly somebody says like, that's silly. Of course you can. And shows them how they can. And you literally rewire your brain through immediately, yeah, immediately. exercises and modalities. But then you have to fight that belief that is also installed.
2: In your example, in your example, which is a good example, your action will reinforce your new belief. Right. So I love that example. Cause you're like, okay. And I love NLP by the way, which is interesting when you're studying and then they wouldn't give you the hypnosis course <laughs> a credit. You have to go out and get it extra. But so you think you can't read all of a sudden you can read. So now you believe you can read. Well, you keep reading. Even if the world reinfects you with the old belief, you're going, dude, I'm reading. What are you yeah. about? Like, hello, look, reading. So it Continually bats away the reinfection of the old belief and of other people's expectation. And they would very, it's a very concrete thing. And they could very quickly go, Oh my gosh, you do read. Not the same at all for the softer things. So if you have somebody who, where you say their belief is that they personally are worthless, like this very sort of global, overarching thing, I can in five days have them feel completely different than that but after i leave their entire world is going to keep telling them right they're going to keep telling them that they're worthless so this is such a big general arc that even if they maintain this targeted area of skill set that i give them they're still going to think they're worthless everywhere else it takes a lot and for that to domino that's pretty special when that happens.
0: And a lot of the times that's why people also have to move elsewhere, like right. get a different group of people because right. like very totally. said, in this group, this is my identity. So right. I don't like it. It doesn't serve me, but then I need to go elsewhere because for these people, I will always be this person and I will always feel like this person when I'm with this group of people. Correct.
2: I move my kids every six months for that exact reason because they were special needs and the teachers and stuff would have like all this energy in the beginning and then it would start to taper off and they'd start to make assumptions about them. And that was like, Oh, time to go. Now the challenge in that was every time I moved, no matter how much progress they made, people met them where they were at. So that was good, but it was also meant that they didn't get the sort of the pat on the back for all the distance they had just walked. Right. Right. But still, it was a working solution. I had to move them constantly to make sure that people are always meeting them where they were at so they could continue to grow.
0: I think that is tremendously important with our children and to keep motivating them and to keep making sure that they don't adopt any of these attitudes. They don't adopt any of these beliefs that are not going to serve them. And we even have to be, I think... Very aware of how we talk in front of them because sometimes we are installing these. Oh my gosh, we always installing even without trying. You see it in people who have all these different limiting beliefs around money and around success and around work and around everything, and it is because you know they were just brought up in those conversations, those beliefs, those, and it keeps perpetuating.
2: Well, and in fairness to us, we don't see the stuff we think is true, right?
0: So, right. If I
2: believe that, I don't know, the 1% are evil, then I can't see anything other than the 1% are evil. So your belief literally blinds you. And that means that you're going to pass it to your children. There's kind of no avoiding that. We all do it. Every one of us passes our beliefs to our children. But what we can ask of ourselves is to assess a lot. You know, just assess a lot. Are we moving in a direction we want? Are we considering happiness important? Are we piling stuff on our kids so heavy and hard that they're all stressed because they think if they don't graduate with high grades and go to an Ivy League college, they're going to be failures. It's just a total lie. It's a complete and total farce. So we have to assess and look at you know, what are we hoping for in our children's lives. And then we're gonna be blind again, but you know, do a little bit and assess again. So be willing to just look at yourself and know that it's actually correct to be wrong. We are all wrong, right? So get comfortable with that. We're right for a while, change happens as a result of it, and it becomes wrong and it's time to change. And just get good
0: with that. Yeah, I think that is so important because you're absolutely right. We are wrong more often than not. But we just, you know, we just change and adopt. And that's, I think, something that is very valuable for us to be teaching to our children. And and this is something that does come out a lot with our listeners. Regardless of what topic we're talking about, we're talking about nutrition, we're talking about exercise, we're talking about different habits. The question always comes into, okay, yeah, yeah, that's great. But how can I instill this in my children as they grow up? because I don't want them to reach adulthood and have all these bad habits that I developed in my childhood. So like I said, whether it is nutrition, whether it is exercise or lack thereof, whether it is all of those things, people don't want their kids to actually grow up and have those same challenges. So I think that bringing that awareness to everything that we're doing while we're with them is incredibly important.
2: And it, it's back to when I said, just get down there and play with them. If you want them to have good eating habits, have good eating habits. You know, too often we want our kids to fix what we didn't fix. That's ridiculous. you got to fix you.
0: Well, especially we're giving them the same toolbox.
2: <laughs> right? So if you have good eating habits, here's how it goes they fight you. They don't agree. They say all their friends don't have to do that. They move out and they do what you did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that true, right?
2: So just relax and do the right thing. That's
0: all. Exactly. So put up with the arguments and they're going to end up doing the right things anyway. Pretty much most of the time. That's amazing. That's amazing. So before we wrap this thing up, why don't you just tell us a little bit as well about your book? And I know that you've written a few, but you recently released another book about abuse. So what made you write that book and tackle that huge challenge, really?
2: Let me see if I have it here. I don't see. I'm not a good guest. I'm supposed to have all this stuff at the ready so I could show you the cover. You know, so I have, have a thought that I want to do three picture books. I don't want them to be on kind of heavy, important subject matter, but have the look of a comic book so that they sit on a coffee table or in a doctor's office. And the people that wouldn't normally pick up that book end up picking it up because it's an easy read and and it has its one major, major lesson in it. So it that is the second of the picture books and that was a story I've been wanting to tell for a long time. That's a personal story. That's about what happened for me. And really, I can tell you the story, and you can still read it and still be impacted. So it's called Sever the Cycle of Abuse with a Subshot Savior. And you know, I had two kids. So I was trying to figure out what's going on with me. I was falling apart. I was reliving these experiences of violence. You know, every time I'd go to sleep, I'd feel like things were coming at me to hit me. To You don't need all the details. But I was falling apart. And uh, I didn't want to fall apart so I had a couple of kids. So I went to see a psychiatrist. I literally only did that twice. And on the second visit, I used the word abuse. And I had never been able to use the word abuse, right? I, I thought of it, well, they were mean. They were frustrated. They were right. All those, those words. So on my way home, I was pretty shook up that I felt very guilty for calling it abuse. I felt like I was a horrible daughter for saying something so horrible. Um, You know, naming something is hard. And so then I went into a subway. I'm from Canada. It was actually a submarine shop. And um, I went in there and there was a homeless lady there. And she was trying to share her submarine sandwich with me. And she smelled really bad. And my polite self is trying to be nice to her. And and she just keeps talking about her mother. And the woman looks to be like 100 years old. But she's ravaged by being homeless in, in a place that has four seasons. I just listened to her and saw myself. Here was this woman that had lived this whole life. And she couldn't stop worrying about her mother and i just didn't want to be tethered anymore so the story really gets you there more than i'm doing it for you right now but i wanted to be able to say to people no matter your what kind of abuse spousal domestic whatever there's this moment in your life because first you get free but then you have to get free right right So you can get out of the situation, but that's when you actually are more tethered to it. And this is something people often don't know, that when you leave a situation of abuse and you can relax because now you're not afraid, it actually grabs onto you emotionally stronger. And the reason for that is you're not busy defending it, right? Deflecting, defending, actively living in it. So the fear is bigger and the thinking is more all-encompassing. And now you have to actually get free. And that's the place where people get stuck. And they don't know how to do that. So they go back and they re enter because they just don't know how. So I'm hoping that this book will give them that.
0: That actually makes sense because you hear all these different stories about, you know, the, the most common is uh, you know, domestic abuse. And women leave their abusive husbands, but then they go back. <clears throat> And people think like, well, why would you do that? And now what you're explaining actually kind of makes sense or at least explains it. it doesn't it's, make a, sense it's a part. That's,
2: it. Yeah, that's a part of it. I mean, there's also the, you know, the definition of love and the confusion between feeling anxious and worried about someone, the opinion of you, meaning they matter that much, therefore you must love them. Like there's all of those things, but we can get that across to folks because that's out there. What isn't? very much out there is what do I do with the fact that even though I'm free, I'm not free. So that's the piece I wanted to attack.
0: That's great. And you know what, before we move on and we wrap this uh, episode up, I do want to take a moment and acknowledge you for this amazing work that you're doing. I think uh, thank you. we need more people looking at at all these different functions and amazing things that our brains are capable of and help us make sense of it and help us really be in control so that we can enjoy our lives more. And I think that your work and what you're doing with all the different examples that you've just shared with us and your books and the documentary and trying to reach as many people, you're really doing that. So I definitely do want to acknowledge you for that kind of work okay. that you're doing. Now, if somebody who's listening to us right now, they wanted to learn more about you, and I don't know if you do like, if you currently do like one on one work or some sort of remote work or anything like that, where can they find out more about you?
2: Um, LynetteLouise.com or BrainBody.net, either one, uh, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. I've, I'm always on there. I post every day. I'm not taking new patients right now because I give them a 10-year commitment. So they don't always need that. But I, in mind, want to give them 10 years and I'm 62. That makes me 72. So that's too old. So, <laughs> so I've stopped taking new patients unless they're already inside the group that I'm working with but I still do speaking. I still write books. I still, you know, I talk to people, consult and yes, because I'm global, I won't go all over the world to do my work. So I do it on Skype,
0: um, on Zoom, or whatever. Perfect. So I'll make sure to add those links to this episode's description. For those of you listening to us right now, you know the drill. If you're listening as a podcast, you just scroll to the podcast app and find this episode, and you'll see everything down there in the description. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you know where the description is in YouTube. You just scroll down, and you're going to see all the links down there, complete with our show notes and with everything else. Now, Before we say goodbye, this has been a very wild interview because we've touched on so many topics and obviously we kind of had a roadmap, but we touched a little bit on different sides. I think you and I, we share a lot of beliefs. We share a lot of that passion that we have for helping people and it was really, really good. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience before we say goodbye?
2: Sure. I like to always give at least one tip. So here's one that I, I, and it's a different one every time. You have listen to every time I'm a guest. no. (laughs) Here's something people do a lot. They either believe in, don't let, you know, taking care of the bottom line with the kids, like the discipline, you know, do your homework, this stuff, right? Do your chores, do all that. Or they're very, and of course there's exceptions, but it's very dichotomous. So there's all these people that go, oh no, just be positive, just be positive, just be positive. So your children do need compliments. They do need encouragement. They do need lots and lots of adoration and love but they do need the bottom line too. And what people forget is that it's not really that the top line moves up, 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 or the bottom line, moves, they move together. So when you change your expectation of your child because they improved, and that's as you should, you know, first they can't do the dishes, now they can, now you expect them to. Remember that when they don't do the dishes, you now expect them to, and you have to raise that up. And that's true, not just as concrete things like chores, but it's more true actually as things like grades or homework style or how you treat me, how you speak to me, how hard you try for yourself, everything. You raise the top bar, you raise the bottom bar. You got it. They both come up. So don't be adverse to discipline and conflict with your child. Like I said, when they move up, they become you anyway. And don't not give them all that gorgeous love and compliments that they need to shore them up so that they can handle when you raise the bottom bar.
0: I think that that's a great recommendation. And I'm sure that is something that we can all start adopting. As a matter of fact, as you were explaining it, I've been adopting for the last two or three years, a very similar mindset in my own life. First, by also showing that same love and appreciation of myself, then treating myself with kindness, because a lot of the times we don't do that. And I've been doing that for a number of years now. And it's been a completely different experience for me and in in several regards. And the other one is also raising that bar. And what I Call it or how I refer to it is I make my best for any given day is my new baseline. So once you get to something, then you also force yourself to saying, Okay, you've done this before, now you know, and this is the bare minimum that we're going to expect. So now that you put it in saying, You know what, maybe this is how we should be raising our kids, it makes total sense. And I totally agree with you.
2: Cool. That and your children are not supposed to be convenient. So stop rolling your eyes (laughs) in exasperation and listen and help them.
0: I like that one. They're not supposed to be convenient. Perfect. Well, everyone listening, I hope you've had a great, great, great time listening to us. You've been listening to Dr. Lynette Lewis and Dr. E talk about a lot of things that have to do with the brain. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember to come visit us next week right here.
1: Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless did you enjoy the show please like share and subscribe where you listen to podcast dr e wants to hear from you go to DRE.show. dot show again that's dr e dot show until next time this is dr e's highway to health helping you live ageless
0: so there you have it i hope you enjoyed this episode what was your favorite takeaway by now you should know the drill just tag me on instagram or connect with me on linkedin and let me know what you think and by the way remember that you can find the links to everything we discussed in this episode in the show notes just scroll down to this episode description on your podcast app and tap on the appropriate link and before you go remember to check out my new coaching programs at e.show forward slash coach see the different options learn more ask questions, and decide whether or not health coaching is right for you and your goals. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Dr. Lynette Lewis and Dr. E talk about your brain. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you here next week. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.